This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. All right. Well, thanks for joining us. Uh, my name is Herman Ponser. I'm from Duke University, and I study human evolution broadly, how our past uh, shapes our bodies and, and shapes our lives today. And I'm particularly interested in how our bodies burn calories, our metabolism. And the reason I've been focusing on counting calories for my career is that um, in evolutionary biology, uh, calories are fundamentally important. Calories are the, the currency of life, right? Every task we do from growth to reproduction to maintaining our bodies to uh, movement, uh, physical activity, as we'll talk about in this uh, workshop today, requires energy, right? Calories are what make everything work and every task requires energy. And not only that, um, but when we think about sort of the, the, where the rubber hits the road in evolutionary biology, life is, is basically a game of turning energy into offspring. So as we see with this chimpanzee mother here who's eating while she's taking care of her young infant, um, and she'll be nursing that infant until it's about three or four years old, uh, this very obvious and very easy to draw a line between the energy that she's taking into her bodies and the energy that she's able to, to turn into nourishment uh, for that offspring. But even when it's not as obvious and direct as this, our bodies are always calibrated and tuned to use the energy from our food to uh, promote survival and ultimately reproduction. That's what uh, evolution cares about is reproductive fitness. And so if we can follow the calories that a species burns, we can learn a lot about it. Energy is sort of fundamental to everything that any species does. And so when we look around the tree of life, right, we look at all the diversity of species that we find, we can think about each of those species and all that diversity as diversity in the metabolic strategy that each species has evolved to use to, to turn energy in its environment into offspring. And that calories perspective, that, that calories first perspective is um, really important, I think. And it leads to an obvious question then, as someone who studies anthropology and studies human evolution, which is how has human metabolism evolved? How has our metabolic strategy changed over uh, both the deep course of evolution of, of the group of primates that we're part of, as well as in our own lineage. So um, we'll start then with the oldest question here that we'll talk about today, which is how has evolution uh, changed the metabolic strategy, the way that uh, we spend our energy across the entire primate group, okay? Humans are primates along with monkeys and apes and lemurs and lorises. We're all part of this primate order and that primate order diverged from the other mammals about 65 million years ago, give or take. And so we are all members of this group, the group primates. And when I started this work about oh, 10 or 12 years ago now, we didn't know a whole lot about how primates spend their energy or how it might differ from other species. Uh, we'd had lots of measurements of resting metabolic rate or, or basal metabolism. That's the energy that an animal spends when it's at rest. But of course, animals don't spend most of their days at rest. Most animals spend most of their days awake and active and moving. And so we didn't have lots of measurements of the total energy expended over the course of 24 hours uh, for many primate species. And so that's what I'm going to talk about today. I'll be focusing on the total energy burned, the total calories burned over 24 hours for primates in our species as well. Okay. So there wasn't a lot of data on that. And so with some collaborators, uh, we started a project about 10 years ago, which we'll call the Primate Energetics Project. And we went to as many zoos as we could. We went across different human populations. 
Um, we went to sanctuaries. We even had some data that we were able to get from wild populations of primates. And we measured daily energy expenditure using this uh, technique called doubly labeled water, which uses isotopes to track the body's production of CO2. So it's a really uh, precise and accurate measure of the total calories you burn over 24 hours. And what we found was really surprising because we didn't expect to find huge differences. We thought primates would look like other mammals. But in fact, what we found was that primates are quite distinct. So here's a graph that let's walk ourselves through. Every dot here is a population of primates uh, or other mammals. So the gray is other mammals. Uh, green dots are populations of primates. And you can see right away here that as we get from go from smaller bodied to larger bodied, right, species burn more and more energy. So small species burn fewer calories a day than large species, just like we'd expect, right? Mice burn fewer calories than elephants, for example. Primates follow that same rule. So small bodied primates, uh, little lemurs and lorises and marmosets, they burn fewer calories every day than big primates like gorillas and orangutans. And so that line goes up to the right for us too. But notice how our line, the primate line, is shifted below the other mammals. And that shift doesn't look like a whole lot here, but it's actually quite a big difference. When we compare our expenditure as primates to other placental mammals, uh, primates only burn about half the energy that you'd expect for a mammal their size. That's how big that shift is on this plot. Notice that the numbers here uh, don't go one, two, three, four. They go one, 10, 100, 1,000. When we plot things in log, log space like this, it can be deceiving uh, how big those differences really are. But it's a big difference. And just to kind of give you a better look at it, here we can look at uh, primates uh, compared to other mammals of similar body size. So if we look at ring-tailed lemurs at about two kilograms versus foxes, you can see how different they are, 217 calories a day versus 425 bonobos, our ape relatives, similarly low energy compared to a similarly sized mammal. So primates are really slow metabolism species, right? Our entire primate group is a low metabolism group. And that has big implications for our lives today. As we're, we're, we're part of this primate group that doesn't spend many calories. Um, and what we think the big implication here is that uh, by having a slow metabolism, um, we have a slower pace of life. So remember, I began by talking about how every task we do from growth to reproduction to maintenance, all of it requires energy. And so if our bodies are burning energy more slowly, then it stands to reason that we're going to grow up slow, more slowly. We're going to reproduce more slowly. We're going to age more slowly. And, you know, we can see that in our own daily lives. If, uh, for example, here's a picture of my son and, and our family dog. Um, my son is nine years old right? And he's not even an adult yet. Uh, whereas my dog is 15, right? And in the later end of her life as a dog, our, our family pets, you know, don't live much past their teens because they live an accelerated life compared to us. Actually, it's, it's primates though that are the oddballs out. Primates as a, in general as a group grow slowly, reproduce slowly, and age slowly. And we think this is because uh, as a direct result of having such a slow metabolism. All right. Well, that's the primate group. What about our branch of the primate group? For that, we might expect to see differences in how we burn our calories compared to other apes. And the reason we might expect to see those differences is that humans have a suite of really expensive, metabolically expensive, energetically expensive traits. We have large brains and our brains, brain tissue is very energetically costly. Um, your brain basically runs a 5K every day. It burns about 300 kilocalories a day. 
Ape brains are much smaller and therefore burn much less energy. Humans also have larger babies more often than apes do, and that's energetically costly. We're more physically active, of course, and that also burns lots of energy. And so we wanted to know, how does human energy expenditure, how does our metabolism compare to the other apes? And for that, we focused in on energy expenditures, metabolic rates, between orangutans, gorillas, humans, and chimps and bonobos, which are in the same genus, the genus Pants, so we'll group them together. And when we focused in on those species, what we find is really interesting. Uh, humans actually spend much more energy every day than other great apes do. Even after we control for body size, which these data show, even after we control for activity level, our bodies just burn more calories every day. Our cells are working faster, burning more energy. And we think that has to do, again, uh, with this fundamentally human suite of traits that we've evolved, big brains, big babies, and active lifestyles. So humans are the high energy ape. And we don't know exactly when that evolved, when that change in our metabolism evolved on the, in the, the 7 million years of our uh, hominid evolution since we branched off from chimps and bonobos. Uh, but what we suspect very strongly is that that change, that metabolic acceleration, uh, occurred around two and a half million years ago with the beginning of uh, our hunting and gathering uh, strategy. So humans and the genus Homo, in fact, before Homo sapiens, we've been hunting and gathering for two and a half million years. Hunting and gathering is the, the, the strategy for the genus Homo. And it's an energetically costly strategy, right? You need a lot of energy to hunt and gather because you need big brains. You need more physical activity. And of course, when we look at humans today, we are also long-lived and you need energy to be able to live a long time. You need to repair and maintain your body. Uh, and we also have large babies more often, as we talked about before. So this suite of traits, which is fundamental to how humans are different than other apes, we think has been made possible by an evolutionary increase in the energy expenditure uh, in our lineage, our metabolic acceleration uh, that has allowed these things to evolve. All right, well, when we think about hunter-gatherers then, this raises the last question that we'll focus on today, and that is, how does lifestyle affect metabolism? Right? Because, of course, humans have been hunting and gathering for since before we were Homo sapiens, two and a half million years. Um, but we don't hunt and gather today. And the recent changes in lifestyle with industrialization and urbanization uh, perhaps have, have led to you know, important changes in our metabolism that might even help under, you know, might lead to some of the reasons that we get sick. Um, and so this question of lifestyle and metabolism has become a really important one in our lives today. Well, to answer that, uh, my colleagues and I have done a number of studies, I'll talk about two of them today, looking at energy expenditures uh, with hunting and gathering groups and other um, small-scale subsistence foragers across the globe to ask how lifestyle affects energy expenditure, and specifically how physically active uh, small-scale sort of subsistence lifestyles affect the calories we burn every day. And the first of those projects was this Hadza Energetics Project that I did with David Reichlin and Brian Wood. The Hadza are a hunting and gathering population in northern Tanzania. Women gather plant foods from the wild uh, to share with the rest of the community. So they eat plant foods and animal foods kind of about 50-50 in terms of contribution to the diet. It's a physically demanding lifestyle, as you can imagine. Women walk about eight kilometers a day on average, about 13,000 steps. Uh, men get even more walking in because uh, they're walking to, to uh, hunt for game, which 
You know, game is thinner on the ground than plant foods are, and so they cover more ground, about 19,000 steps a day. Uh, but both men and women are incredibly physically active compared to you and me and the rest of us in the industrialized world. Uh, if we put it here, if we look at minutes of what are called vigorous and moderately vigorous physical activity uh, per day, the Hadza are getting about 120 minutes of moderate and vigorous physical activity every day. That's about five to 10 times more than we see in industrialized populations like the U.S. And so, you know, one way to think about this is they get more physical activity in a day than most of us get in a week. And so we would expect, of course, as we've all been told that, you know, physical activity increases our energy expenditure, the calories we burn every day, uh, we expected to see much higher daily energy expenditures with the Hadza adults. But of course, nobody had ever actually measured energy expenditures in a hunting and gathering society before this project. And so we went with this doubly labeled water isotope tracking technique. Again, the same technique I've been showing you data from uh, earlier in this talk. It's a very precise and accurate way to measure the calories burned over a 24-hour period. Here's a Hadza man drinking uh, an isotopically enriched water here uh, for our study. And so again, we expected uh, the Hadza to have much higher energy expenditures than we see in industrialized populations. But in fact, that's not what we found at all. So here's the data from that study. Uh, every dot here is a person, a man or a woman. Open symbols are women, closed symbols are men. The red are Hadza men and women, and the gray are men and women from the U.S. and other industrialized populations. And as you can see here, the data are a little bit more cloudy, a little more variable than we saw with the species comparisons because there's inter-individual inter variation in energy expenditure. But we see the same trend. Smaller people, right, with smaller fat-free masses, your lean mass, smaller body-sized people burn fewer calories every day than large people do. Well, that makes sense because larger people have more cells, more active cells doing more active things. But once we account for this increase in energy expenditure with body size, we see the Hadza fall right in line with all of the other adults in this study. So men and women, women from the US and Europe have the same energy expenditures as men and women in the Hadza community. There's no difference in energy expenditure between the Hadza and industrialized populations. That was a huge shock and it made us wonder, maybe it's just the Hadza or do we see this more broadly? We have now checked this in a few other populations as well as a few other species. But what I want to talk to you about here, I'll, I'll talk about this one study that I think is really shows what's going on here. Uh, here is a, a study from the Schwar population led by Sam Erlocker. He focused on children's energetics. Of course, childhood energetics and metabolism and obesity are increasingly important topics in public health today. He was interested in whether we see similarities or differences in energy expenditures in children. And so he focused on children's energy expenditures from 5 to 12 years old. And uh, here are some of his data. So he showed, for example, that the, as we would expect, the Schwar children are more physically active than uh, children in the U.S. And, and in Canada in this comparative sample. The children among the Schwar population also have higher resting metabolic rates or basal metabolic rates. And we think that's because they have a higher pathogen burden. Their bodies are fighting, on average, fighting more bacteria and viruses and parasites than industrialized populations are. So every dot here is a kid. Blue kids are from industrialized populations, red are from the Schwar. And you can see, again, we, we do all of these plots against fat-free mass. The Schwar population has a higher resting metabolic rate. It's a lower resting metabolic rate for industrialized populations. And so higher activity level, higher resting ex expenditure, we might expect that they would have higher total daily expenditures. But just like we see with the Haza study, there is no difference between total daily energy expenditure with the Schwar kids 
and that with the US and UK populations. So it doesn't matter what your lifestyle is, it would seem. Your body adjusts and is able to keep energy expenditures in check. And as I mentioned, this isn't just in humans, and it's not even just in these populations. Um, we see this in other species as well. I showed you this uh, graph before. We have primates uh, here versus other mammals. But what I didn't tell you before is that if we look at the primate group, some of those populations are from captive zoo and sanctuary populations. Some of those populations are primates in the wild. And there's actually no difference for primates in zoos versus primates in the wild in terms of how many calories they burn every day. Um, of course, after we account for the effects of body size. And so primates, uh, non-human primates, are also adjusting to their lifestyles, it seems, and keeping energy expenditures in check. So what this might look like then is, let's imagine two sedentary people. Uh, this person on the right decides to adopt a more active lifestyle. And for a while, right, their energy expenditure will go up. This is total energy expenditure, and we can think about it as being made up of activity and other, maybe resting and immune function and reproductive function and everything else. For a while, after they start a, a new exercise program, for example, their energy expenditures will go up. And, but then, as their body adjusts, uh, their body will make adjustments in this other category. We will spend less on other tasks, and we'll basically eat up and absorb um, all, or nearly all, of the energy expenditure that we are increasing, that we're adding to our daily lives with exercise. Now, that's surprising, perhaps, but seems to be a pretty widely seen phenomenon. It might also help explain why it can be hard to lose weight uh, with just exercise alone. Exercise in isolation doesn't do a whole lot for weight, and this might be one of the reasons why. Um, but before we get frustrated about exercise, I just want to point out that this less of the other stuff is actually probably a really important benefit of exercise. And so what we see is less inflammation, less stress reactivity, less, less reproductive hormone production. To show you what this looks like, here's the amount of inflammation measured by C-reactive protein, the percentage of people who have clinically elevated chronic inflammation, right? And this is versus how much they exercise. So the people who exercise zero to three times a month, four to 21 times a month, or more than 22 times a month. And you can see your likelihood of having uh, chronic inflammation, clinically elevated chronic inflammation is much lower if you are a someone who exercises regularly because your body, that's part of the adjustment that your body is making to exercise is spending less energy on inflammation. Similarly, with stress reactivity, this is a nice study uh, showing stress uh, response and, and cortisol and epinephrine response uh, production, I should say, over 24 hours in women who are either getting, uh, this, this is a, a study to measure reactions and responses to therapy for depression. Women who only had talk therapy uh, produced more cortisol and epinephrine over the course of the day than those same women when they were had an exercise intervention included in their program. And so by exercising, and it wasn't overly rigorous, it was a sort of a moderate amount of exercise, by exercising a moderate amount, their bodies produced less cortisol and epinephrine. Those are the fight or flight stress hormones that are produced in response to stress. So less inflammation, less stress, less of other stuff that we think is bad for us, actually. And these metabolic adjustments, then, are one really important reason that exercise is so good for us. And so we need to keep this in mind as we think about how our bodies react to exercise and adjust. Okay. Thinking, then, about our evolutionary journey as humans from 65 billion years ago to now, uh, I think we can sum this up in a couple of points. First, I want to make the point again that your metabolism is clever and dynamic. 
It's a product of evolution, right? So it isn't some simple uh, engine that we can rev up or, or, or rev down. Um, it's responding to lifestyle in ways that are clever and dynamic to keep energy expenditures in check. We might expect that, right, from a, a clever product of evolution. Also, metabolism shapes our lives in important ways, right? The rate at which we grow, reproduce, uh, and grow older is shaped largely by how our body brings in energy and allocates it to different tasks. So metabolism really shapes our lives. And when we understand metabolic evolution, we can go a long way towards understanding the evolution of any species, including our own. And finally, uh, certainly relevant to this discussion today, uh, humans are the high energy ape. We've had a, an increase, substantial increase, 20 to 30% more uh, energy per day compared to chimps and bonobos in the amount of energy, the amount of calories that our bodies burn every day. And we think that that's been absolutely critical to fuel the evolution of our bigger brains, uh, bigger babies, and as we'll talk about more today, um, our increased levels of physical activity. So thank you very much. Uh, I want to give a shout out to my collaborators and also a big thanks to the communities we work with around the globe. If you're more interested in the Hadza, you might check out the Hadza Fund to learn more. And if you're interested in the stuff I talked about in this, in this uh, discussion, you might check out my new book, Burn, which covers this and a lot of other research uh, on the metabolism, uh, the, on the evolution of our metabolism. Thank you. My name is Grażyna Jazienska, and today I'm going to talk about physical activity and women's health, mostly about women's reproductive health. We know that physical activity is beneficial for human health. That's very well established. But in case of women, it's not that simple. So for women's physiology and health, uh, physical activity does not have this very simple effect. And we are going to talk about it today. Uh, so there are many effects uh, that physical activity in general has on physiology. So in women, uh, physical activity has impact on reproductive physiology. And through this reproductive physiology impacts other aspects of health. So if we talk about reproductive physiology, uh, today we are going to talk about women who are in uh, reproductive age, meaning women who have menstrual cycles. So in terms of menstrual cycle, you see the, the whole physiology of the cycle and you need to don't uh, you, you don't need to understand all this physiology. Just looking at the very lowest panel, you see levels of two hormones estrogen and progesterone. Those two hormones are crucial for uh, getting pregnant, but they are also important for other aspects of physiology and other aspects of health. So when we talk about those cycles, when we talk about ovarian function, and uh, if we concentrate on women who are healthy, who are in a similar age range, who have regular cycles, Many people assume that in such defined group of women, ovarian function doesn't differ much from person to person. And this is not entirely true. Uh, I ask different questions here. I, in fact, ask questions here. Do women differ when it comes to levels of reproductive hormones? And if they differ, why do they differ? We see uh, immediately looking here that there are differences uh, between women. Here, in fact, we are looking at progesterone level, so the hormone that, that's one of those hormones producing menstrual cycles, 
And uh, we are looking at average progesterone levels in five different populations. And we see that uh, women from the U.S. have higher level than women from Poland, and in turn, women in Poland higher levels than women from Nepal or Bolivia. So there is clearly variation in levels of progesterone among women from different populations. So here we are looking at menstrual profiles, progesterone profiles from four women from the same populations, and each color is represents progesterone levels for a different woman. So we see that um, the, the red color is uh, for somebody who has very low levels of progesterone, blue color for someone with quite high levels, and two other profiles are in the middle. So we see that there are differences among women who are healthy and who have normal, regular menstrual cycles. When it comes to ovarian function, we know that ovarian function is important for fertility, but that's not the only function of reproductive physiology. So ovarian function is also very important for other, other aspects of health. And then in turn, we could ask what influences ovarian function? What influences levels of hormones in women? And we know that... Uh, very important are things that are occurring during adult life. But that's not the only uh, uh, reason for differences in ovarian function among women. So uh, ovarian function is also influenced by childhood environment and even by fetal environment. So it's important in what conditions uh, women were developing uh, during fetal life for their ovarian function when they are adults. All those factors that are important determinants of levels of hormones, important determinants of ovarian function, are factors that are somehow connected to energy. So it's how much energy, metabolic energy, a woman has uh, determines levels of uh, ovarian function. And energy by itself, of course, it's influenced by physical activity. So let's look at adult environment first and uh, look how adult environment influences ovarian function in women. So we know that exercise, physical activity, reduces levels of ovarian hormones. And doesn't matter if uh, we are talking about professional sport, uh, recreational exercise, or physical work, we are observing the same very similar effects. Exercise reduces levels of hormones. Uh, here are um, data that I'm going to show you. They are coming from a small uh, population, small uh, rural population in Poland. Uh, there are several villages uh, located uh, in uh, southern Poland, uh, which are characterized by uh, agricultural lifestyle. And in those villages, women are doing a lot of physical work, especially during the summers, during harvest season. Um, uh, people are not using much of mechanized equipment and it, uh, women are spending many, many hours a day uh, just working uh, uh, physically. And when they do that, 
we can measure levels of their hormones. We can see what's going on with ovarian function of women who are working. Here we are looking at two consecutive summers and we are comparing levels of progesterone of two different groups of women. Uh, the white profile comes from women who are working very hard during the summer. And the red profile comes from women who are doing some work, but they are not expending that much energy. And uh, what we are seeing here is that levels of progesterone in both summers, both harvest season, are really suppressed in women who are expending uh, a lot of uh, energy. So we see that physical activity, uh, which is just physical work, uh, reduces levels of progesterone in women. The same effect we see of physical activity on estradiol profiles. So here we are uh, looking at uh, estradiol levels during the whole menstrual cycle. And we see that uh, women who uh, are working very hard, this is the red profile, have much lower levels of estradiol than women who are not working that hard. This is a yellow profile. And then women who have moderate physical activity are sort of in the middle. So it is really well established that physical activity in adult reproductive age women reduces levels of ovarian hormones. However, if you ask me how much activity a woman needs in order to reduce ovarian hormones, I'm not going to give you a simple answer because I do not have such an answer. And I will tell you why. Why it's not that simple to give recommendations. Uh, in order to understand this, we need to look at the effects of fetal environment on ovarian function. And uh, we, of course, don't know in what conditions someone developed uh, when this person was a baby, but we have some indicators. We have size at birth. And here we are looking at something that's called ponderal index. And ponderal index is an indicator of nutritional status of the baby. It's something like a fatness of the baby. So for our women, we know their ponderal uh, indices. So we know how fat they were where they were born. And we could ask the question, if women who differ in their size at birth, differ later on when they are adults, so about 30 years later, in levels of reproductive hormones, if they differ in ovarian function. And turns out that they do. Uh, here we are looking at three groups of women uh, depending on their size at birth, and we are looking at average estradiol profiles. So estradiol or estrogen is basically um, the same uh, the same hormone. So uh, here we see that women who were born as a relatively skinny babies, this uh, yellow bar, have lower levels of estradiols when they are uh, adults than women who were born as relatively fat babies. Women, uh, this is this bar that's uh, dark orange. So size at birth is important for estradiol in adult women. So now, what if we put this information together? So we know that size at birth is important. We know that physical activity in adults is important. So what's the interactive effect of on estradiol levels of those two 
things that are happening at two different environments, two different life stages. So we are looking at fetal environment and adult environment together. And we are asking how those two things affect ovarian function. And this is, this is quite interesting, in fact, uh, what we observe here. So here we are looking at women who have low physical activity. And turns out that for such women, size at birth is really not important at all when it comes to levels of estradiol that they have as adults. doesn't matter. When we look at women who have high physical activity, size at birth is also not important. But we, when we look at women who have moderate physical activity, and moderate physical activity is sort of the, the amount of activity that women do when they are trying to be physically active, when they are trying to be healthy. So this is sort of important group of women. And uh, when we look at, at those women who have this moderate levels of physical activity, it turns out that women who were born as skinny babies have much lower levels of estradiol than women who were born as large fat babies. So putting all this together, so we really understand what's going on. So uh, green bars are women who have low physical activity and either small or large size at birth. We see that they have high levels of estradiol. It does not surprise us because they are not doing anything in order to lower estradiol levels. Yes. Uh, women with high physical activity are women who have uh, those, uh, those are red bars. And we see that in those women, estradiol levels are suppressed. However, they are suppressed to the same amount in women who were born as skinny babies or fat babies. Doesn't matter. In women who have moderate physical activity, uh, yellow bars, we see that if women were born as a small babies, then moderate physical activity is enough to suppress levels of estradiol. But in women who were born as large babies, moderate physical activity is not enough. So for those women who were born as uh, large babies, they need high levels of physical activity in order to suppress estradiol levels. So we don't really know how much physical activity a woman needs in order to reduce levels of hormones because that depends on her own fetal developmental conditions. And the question is, why do we care about all that? Well, we care because levels of those two female reproductive hormones, estrogens and progesterone, are really, really crucial for many aspects of health. In fact, it's good to have high levels because high levels of those two hormones are beneficial for fertility, are beneficial for cardiovascular health, strong bones, and psychological well-being. So it's good to have a lot of those hormones. When we think about recreational exercise, and I'm not talking about professional sports, this is a different story, but recreational exercise uh, is exercise that is going to reduce fertility. If woman is physically active, her fertility is going to be reduced. However, the suppressive effect of exercise is reversible. Uh, recreational exercise, of course, is going to affect cardiovascular health, 
strong bonds and psychological well-being. And for all those aspects of health, in fact, high estradiol levels are beneficial. But still, the benefits of exercise are outweigh the reduced levels of hormones. So uh, still, exercise is beneficial even though uh, levels of hormones are reduced. There is one more uh, aspect of health uh, for which physical activity is really, really crucial. It's breast cancer. Uh, this beautiful young uh, lady, uh, I'm showing you her painting here because uh, in a medical journal several years ago, there was a paper that argued that she had breast cancer. We don't know that for sure and we will never know. However, we know very well that physical activity reduces risk of breast cancer. We are aware of the mechanism. Uh, why is that? So physical activity reduces risk of breast cancer via reduction in ovarian hormone levels. It also reduces insulin levels, insulin growth factors, and inflammation. So risk of breast cancer in women in general increases due to the access of metabolic energy. Women just have too much energy and also due to high lifetime levels of sex hormones. And of course, we saw that those two things are connected. The more energy women have, the higher levels of uh, hormones. So if high lifetime levels of sex hormones increase the risk of breast cancer, uh, we could guess that in order to reduce the risk of breast cancer, uh, we should reduce lifetime levels of estrogen and progesterone in women. Yes, that would be uh, our guess based on the fact that uh, there is this connection. But in order to understand what's going on, we also need to ask the question why women have high lifetime levels of estrogen and progesterone. And uh, there are two main reasons for that. One is that women today have many menstrual cycles. In fact, it is estimated that modern women have at least four times as many cycles during their lives as women uh, from uh, traditional societies. Why do they have so many cycles? Well, women mature early. Women have later menopause than it was a long time ago. Uh, women don't have many children. And women are not breastfeeding for a long time. And those are all reasons that there are many cycles during lifetime. But the second reason is also that women not only have many cycles, but they have cycles with high levels of hormones. And they have cycles with high levels of hormones because they have too much energy. And one way of reducing this access of energy is, of course, through physical activity. So physical activity is beneficial for health of women. It's beneficial because it directly reduces levels of breast cancer. So the mechanism is mostly through reduction in levels of ovarian hormones. Physical activity also reduces risk of many other diseases. And here it does that despite the reduction in levels of reproductive hormones that are in general very beneficial for many aspects of health. And physical activity also reduces a chance of pregnancy. So someone may worry uh, that exercise will have this kind of effect, 
but this is reversible. So it's enough to stop uh, being physically active and levels of reproductive hormones return to normal. So if you are interested in this topic and would like to know more, uh, there are two recommended readings that I would like to uh, tell you about. So one short, it's uh, a paper from Lancet, which is about reproduction and health and evolutionary perspective on that topic. And another longer one uh, is a book uh, in which I discuss hormones and exercise and physical activity and uh, cancer and uh, many other uh, aspects of women's uh, physiology and health. And thank you very much for your attention. Thanks to the organizers for putting together such an interesting symposium. We're very happy to share some of our data today. Today, I'm going to talk about a genetic mechanism that we think is important for endurance exercise. And I am um, Ellen Breen from the University of California. Okay, so DNA sequence analysis indicates that we are very similar to the great apes. In fact, we are more closer to the bonobos and the chimpanzees than we are to the gorillas and the orangutans. At the amino acid level, there's less than 1% difference in amino acids between us and these other species. So striding bipedalism is a unique feature of hominids that is thought to have appeared about seven to six million years ago. But fossil evidence suggests that endurance running is a capacity that is unique to the genus Homo. And this occurred much later, about two million years ago. So there's still a lot of interest and much to be learned on how this transition came about. There are many anatomical changes that allow humans to endurance run or to run. Also about the same time, about 2 million years ago, we began to use stone tools and hand axes, but there were no projectile weapons at this time. Diets had changed and humans consumed meat. So there was hunting, possibly humans were running after their prey. There are also changes that allowed us to lose heat, such as the development of sweat glands and hair loss. So in 1996, um, Dr. Varkey here at UCSD found a difference in the composition of the serum between humans and the great apes. And this was a chemical that's called the sialic acid Humans have NU5AC, and the other species have NU5GC. And so this is due to a loss in a, or loss in function or a mutation in a gene called CMAH, which converts NU5AC to NU5GC. There are two major kinds of sialic acids, and these are present on our cell surfaces and secreted molecules. And as I just told you, NU5AC is in humans, but NU5GC is in the great apes. These are actually sugar molecules, and they differ just by this one hydroxyl group that's on the end of the sugar molecule. This is because CMAH is a hydroxylase. The sugars are located on our cell surfaces in a branch chain configuration, and the sialic acids are always at the ends of these branch chains. They've been around for a long time since the Deuterostome lineage. They have biophysical properties and also how bacteria or pathogens recognize their host cells. 
So this is an electron micrograph that was prepared so that you could see these branch sugar chains. Sometimes they're called a glycocalyx. This is a capillary within a muscle called the soleus. And you can see this really fuzzy stuff. There's a lot of branch sugar chains on the sur surface of the endothelium. So even though it's just one biochemical change, a change in this hydroxyl group, there's a lot of sugars on all your cell surfaces. We also prepared an electron micrograph of a muscle cell or, or a muscle fiber. And you can see that these branch sugar chains also exist on muscle cells. So why did we think that this very specific biochemical change, a hydroxyl group in your sugar molecules, would have anything to do with endurance running? Well, we had some clues. And the first clue was the timing of this CMAH mutation. There have been reports using various methods, ALU sequence analysis, molecular clock, clock analysis, and they all point to this mutation occurring about two and a half to three and a half million years ago. The other clue came from studying muscular dystrophy in the laboratory. And this work was done by Dr. Martin and, and his group. So um, the MDX mouse is commonly used model to study muscular dystrophy in the lab, and it doesn't express the dystrophin gene. But it's not a perfect model because the severe symptoms, the muscle weakness, is not as great as it is in humans. And the symptoms occur later in the lifespan of the mouse compared to when it would occur in humans. So what the Martin group did is they took the MDX mouse and they crossed it with a CMH null or knockout mouse. And then they got much worse skeletal muscle pathology and weakness. And this impaired the survival of the mice. The Martin group did a similar experiment with the alpha sarcoglycan deficient mice. They crossed it with the CMA null mice and again got worse symptoms in the heart and skeletal muscle that impaired survival. This is another type of muscular dystrophy called limb girdle muscular dystrophy. In fact, if you use this CMAH null background to study many human diseases or chronic illnesses in the lab, you see a much more human-like phenotype. This is, has to do with things like wound healing, cancer progression, even atherosclerosis. So we decided to exercise test these mice on a treadmill. And this work was led by Jonathan Okerbloom, who is a graduate student in the lab. Okay, so we exercise tested them on a treadmill, but before we did this, we kept the mice under two different conditions. They were either untrained, so they just stayed in their cages in the vivarium as usual, or we put them in a cage with a running wheel so they could exercise as much as they wanted to. And you can see in the CMH null mice that they ran for a longer time on the treadmill than the wild type or, or normal mice. And if we exercise train the CMA null mice, they ran even further. They ran further than wild type mice that were exercise trained. So when you house mice with a running wheel, you can go down every day and see how fast they ran the night before, how, what distance they ran. And you can see that in a wild type mice, they increase their speed and distance, but after about a week, they start to plateau your muscles start to adapt. They make more capillaries, they have more mitochondria, and they have more oxidative enzymes. But the CMAs null mice, their speeds just kept increasing and they ran for longer distances. So this suggests that they had an enhanced training response or enhanced response to the in increased inactivity. We next look to see if 
the change in this exercise capacity was due to what was going on in the skeletal muscle. So we fatigue tested a hind limb skeletal muscle called the gastrocnemius. So we stimulated the muscle to repeatedly contract and we measured the force that it could produce. So you can see in a normal mice that as you stimulate, you keep contracting the muscle, that the force decays, it becomes weaker. And this decay was more in the wild type or normal mice than it was in the CMA null mice. And if we call 60% our fatigue point, you can see that the normal mice fatigued after about three minutes, but the CMH null mice took seven minutes to fatigue. We took a closer look at the skeletal muscle itself. And in this measurement, we measured the number of capillaries that are around each fiber, bringing oxygen to the fiber. And we did this in a soleus muscle, which is a red, more oxidative muscle, and a plantaris, which is a more glycolytic muscle. In the more oxidative soleus muscle, we saw an increased number of capillaries that were surrounding each fiber. Now, this is a very normal adaptation in your skeletal muscle to exercise training. But in this case, the mice did not exercise train at all. They just stayed in their cages. We also looked to see how well the mitochondria were respiring. And to do this experiment, we took a small bundle of fibers and we incubated them with a panel of substrates and inhibitors. So we could see the oxygen consumption at each complex that make, makes up the electron transport chain. And you can see in, the, in your diaphragm, which is the skeletal muscle and the soleus, there's a greater oxygen flux in both these skeletal muscles, suggesting that the muscle is using their oxygen more efficiently in the mitochondria. Then we took a more global approach and we measured a, a large number of metabolites in this metabolomics analysis. Then you can see trends of metabolites that go up and go down. They seem to change with CMAH null knockout mice. There's even a greater response with exercise training. And there seems to be an even more pronounced train response when you have CMAH knockout and exercise training. If we run a pathway analysis on all these metabolites, the things that popped up were changes in amino acid metabolism and a tenfold enrichment in the pentose phosphate pathway. So it's possible that these changes are helping to regulate an increased reactive oxygen species load or oxidative stress that you might expect from a more metabolically active muscle type. So human skeletal muscle is a great consumer of oxygen. And in these two studies, one by Anderson and Saltine in 1985, and a later study by the Wagner Group, they tried to measure the maximal oxygen consumption that a human skeletal muscle could achieve. And they did this using a special kind of exercise called the leg kick exercise. So you're focusing the exercise in one muscle group, and you don't have a big contribution from your heart and your lungs. So if you increase the work that the leg is doing, there's a linear increase in the amount of oxygen that is taken up. And so there's a parallel increase in the amount of blood flow that's going to the muscle. But you see that these two curves, they never reach a maximum or a plateau, which suggests that if you can bring the oxygen to the muscle, it has the capacity to use it. According to Fick's law, this rate of oxygen consumption is dependent on the diffusion of oxygen and the difference in the levels of oxygen in your red blood cell and oxygen that's available to the mitochondria. So this diffusion variable is dependent on the number of 
red blood cells that are flowing through your capillaries and the velocity that they're going through your capillaries. The oxygen also has to go through these diffusion distances. Oxygen is bound to hemoglobin in your red blood cell, and then it has to cross these barriers. The red blood cell membrane, the red blood cells are within capillaries, so there's a capillary membrane, an interstitial space, till it reaches this network of mitochondria that are in your skeletal muscle cells. So we decided to take a deeper look at these very last steps of the oxygen transport system and see how this change in sialic acid could influence this. So the first thing is um, red blood cell dynamics. So if you change that glycocalyx on your endothelial cell surface, this could possibly influence how well the red blood cells are flowing through your capillaries. The change in hydroxyl group could change the polarity and the hydrofibricity of membranes. So this would influence the permeability of these membranes to oxygen. And as I showed you previously, there's also these branched sugar chains on the surface of the myofiber. So this could possibly influence how oxygen is taken up by the myofiber. This region here is sometimes referred to as the carrier-free region because oxygen is not bound to hemoglobin in your red blood cells, and it's not bound to myoglobin in the muscle cells. It's in this free zone. Okay, so the first experiment we set up was to see how well oxygen transferred across red blood cell membranes. And to do this, we use an absorbent spectroscopy technique and took advantage of the fact that the spectra of hemoglobin and myoglobin shifts when it goes from a deoxyform to an oxyform. So when myoglobin gains oxygen molecules, the 405 signal goes up and the 447 signal goes down. So we monitor this 447 signal over time and we can get an estimate of how much oxygen transfers from hemoglobin inside the red blood cell to a deoxymyoglobin. And so far our estimates suggest that 12% more oxygen is transferred in the red blood cells that we isolated from the CMAH null mice compared to a normal mouse. We also tried to see how permeable the capillaries were. And to do this, we used a compound called sulfo-NHS biotin and we perfused it into the vascular system of a mouse at a constant rate. We measured this in the brain and there wasn't much difference. But when we look in the skeletal muscle, you can see in the normal mice, there's a lot of signal um, in the capillaries between the fibers. So we detect this biotin with an avidin molecule that has a fluorescent tag. But in the CMH null mice, the signal is weaker. And this suggests that there is a diffuse leakage or permeability in the CMH null mice. So the endothelium might be a bit more permeable. So in this next experiment, we looked at the oxygen-dependent activation in the mitochondria in Meyer fibers from the CMH null mice. And this experiment was done by Leo Noguera in the lab. And so what Leo did is he isolated um, a single fiber from an FDB muscle. So we used a little bit different muscle because it was it's convenient for Leo to get just one fiber out of the muscle type. And then Leo puts the fibers into, these single fibers into a chamber where he can stimulate to them to contract as if they were exercising. And he bubbled different gases through the chamber. So either 5% oxygen, 1% oxygen, or almost none, 0% oxygen. Then to see if the mitochondria were activated, we measured the fluorescence of NADH. So NADH is metabolized by the electron transport chain. 
So if the electron transport chain or the mitochondria are working efficiently, you'll have a steady state of this NADH. But if the mitochondria start to slow down, this fluorescent signal is going to accumulate. We also measured the oxygen amounts right next to the fiber when we perfused with the different gases. So if you perfuse with 5% O2, the muscle is seeing about 40 millimeters of mercury oxygen. So there's plenty of oxygen around and the wild type and the null mice are respiring about the same. But as you start to drop the oxygen level to 10 millimeters of mercury into very low levels, 2.7 millimeters of mercury, you see the two curves start to separate. So NADH is accumulating in the wild type mice, but even at these very, very low oxygen levels, the CMAH null mice are still respiring. In the same preparation at the same time that he's measuring this NADH signal, he also measured the force that's generated. So he, he measured the fatigue response in a single fiber. And you can see the force decay in the wild type mice was about 70%, but in the CMA null mice, it was only 55%. But as you drop the oxygen levels, these two numbers become similar, about 70% decay and force. So these data suggest that mitochondria in the myofibers from the CMH null mice respire at these very low near limiting oxygen tensions. So what can we conclude from this? So I, I hope I've impressed upon you that these CMH null mice run very well on the treadmill. They have an increased aerobic endurance capacity. Our study so far suggests that this may be due to more efficient delivery of oxygen and more efficient utilization by the skeletal muscle mitochondria. Given the time of the CMH gene inactivation, when humans migrated over long distances and used persistence hunting, this genetic mutation may have contributed to an endurance phenotype that is uniquely human. So could this broken gene have turned our ancestors into marathon runners? Okay, and I would just like to acknowledge um, the people who worked on this study with me. This is the initial group on the first study we did, and we've been collaborating with San Diego State with Dr. Tong's lab to look at some of the um, biochemistry of the red blood cells and the myoglobin, and Dr. Jennings here at UCSD. And these are some of the folks in the lab that perform the studies. Okay, thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.